The Gospel of John, chapter 19, begin reading in verse 23. This is what the Word of God has to say. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary and the, and the wife of uh, Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and, the, and the, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they, they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit so it is a valuable thing indeed for you to know when something has been finished now the story i'm about to tell you when i read it and when i think about it um, i I think about um, there were some gilligan's island uh, episodes that picked up on this theme. So in my mind, all of this story is framed and set in the Gilligan's Island set, okay? Just, just for you to understand what's happening between my ears up here. On March the 10th, 1974, Lieutenant Hiro Anada surrendered uh, to, uh, to uh, soldiers after he had fought nearly 30 years his, at his post for World War II. 1974, that's th- nearly 29, 30 years after the end of the Second World War. Now, uh, Mr. Anada and three other soldiers were left as the Japanese were evacuating one of the Philippine islands. They were left there to defend the island and they were told, you fight to the very last man. Well, they were deep in the jungles of the Philippines, and they didn't get the news that Japan had surrendered and the war was over. And so Mr. Anata fought on. For 30 years living off the the land, he fought on. One of the the other soldiers that was with him uh, uh, was captured. Two of the others were were killed, but Mr. Anata fought on. He killed nearly 30 nationals over those 30 years, fighting his war. They tried to capture him. They tried to convince him that the war was over. They spent nearly a half million dollars working to try to to bring him in. 1,300 men were used to locate him. And for 30 years, he fought a one-man war against all the other inhabitants of the Philippine island that he was on. Finally, on March the 10th, 1974, nearly 30 years after the end of the Second World War, he surrendered his rusty sword after he had received a personal command from his former superior officer, aren't you glad that man was still living, 
and commanded him to surrender. He was 22 years old when they left him on the island. He was 52 years old when he came off. And when he was asked about his time in the jungle and those 30 years, his only statement about his 30 years in the jungle fighting a one-man war was this. Nothing pleasant happened in 29 years in the jungle. Now that's a sad reality. And the sad thing about Mr. Anato was he was fighting a war that was already finished. He was fighting a battle that was already over. For, for 29, 30 years, he labored and worked and fought for something that did not matter. There was, I mean, that is the very definition of wasting a life on a pointless endeavor. In John chapter 19, we, John tells us the testimony of Jesus on the cross. Last week, we were, we were in the passage just preceding this, where Jesus was with Pilate and and the, and the Jews were, 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 were screaming for him to be, to be crucified. And, and John tells us in this passage that, that uh, Jesus hung on the cross, that he, that he died. And, his, and, and, and a couple of things he says in there. A couple of th- when he asked for uh, something to drink, John says this was to fulfill the scriptures. And then when, it, when Jesus recognized that all had been completed, then he speaks that simple phrase, It is finished. He gave up his spirit, and he died. So this morning, I want to talk to us about what was finished, what was completed on the cross of Jesus. And, and, and here's how we're going to divide our thinking about this passage. Number one, the scripture was fulfilled. And so when we see this event unfold before us in the gospel testimony, the gospel is very clear. John is very clear to, to over and over articulate to us. It, these are not just events that are happening by random order. They're not just happenstance. These are events that were, were declared by scripture and fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. And so when Jesus says it is finished, he is saying the, the promise of scripture has been fulfilled completely in my death. But more than just scripture being completed, redemption was completed. Dear friends, the work of redemption, what was required for you to be made right before God, has been completely, totally done. There is no more work to be done for your redemption. And that's why we say thirdly that atonement is finished. The work for your atonement is finished. But let's begin with scripture. So look with me back in verse 24. So it tells us this, what seems like a, a rather random detail, that the soldiers are dividing up his, his clothes. Now, this is a morbid reality. They know he's about to die, but he's not dead yet. And they're already dividing up his, his stuff, what little stuff he has. They're dividing it up amongst themselves. And it tells us that his tunic, uh, in verse uh, 23, it tells us that his tunic was was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. That was more desirable than the other, and so they didn't want to rip it and ruin it. And so they, they decided that they would cast lots for it to see who shall have it. And then it, and John tells us this was fulfilled uh, to fulfill the Scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Then later in verse 28, you see, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and then John tells us, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Now, the point here is that Jesus fulfilled the scriptural testimony of what was to happen. 
Jesus perfectly fulfilled the testimony of what was to happen. The life, the ministry, the suffering of Jesus perfectly fulfilled the testimony of Scripture. It had been prophesied that the Messiah was to be born of a woman without the benefit of a human father. The Bible tells us this was complete. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give to you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall, shall, compare, shall conceive and bear a son and, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the New Testament, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, this is in Galatians chapter 4, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. It was foretold in Scripture that he was to be, to be the seed of Abraham and of the line of David. In Genesis chapter 22, it says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. To 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you. This is to David, it's speaking. You shall come from who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish my throne of his kingdom forever and ever. Micah uh, tells us that he was to be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrah, uh, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you shall uh, come from you shall come forth to me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient times. In the Old Testament, right, the Old Testament writers have spoken of his flight to Egypt and, and a subsequent return to his, his own land. And Hosea and Isaiah both speak of this. Christ's appearance was to be preceded by that of one like Elijah. And Malachi tells us in, in chapter 3 that he's to have a, a prophet like, my, uh, like Elijah. And, and the New Testament tells us that John the Baptist would fulfill this. Christ's miracles were foretold, that, that the eyes of the blind should be opened, that the ears of the deaf should be unstopped, that the lame a man uh, would, 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 uh, the lame would leap, as, uh, and that the tongue of the dumb would, dumb would sing. Jesus performed all of these miracles and more. Zechariah tells us that the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was to happen. Psalm 69 tells us that he was to be hated and rejected by his own people. Psalm 41 tells us that a friend would betray him. Isaiah 53 says that he would be numbered amongst the transgressors. Psalm 22 tells us that he was to be pierced through hands and feet. And Psalm 22 verse 18 says, And they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In other words, what happens here at the foot of the cross with Jesus in this moment. The point is, is that all this had been completed. There was nothing at all that had been written about Jesus that was left undone. The testimony of the cross is the complete fulfillment of the word of God and the testimony of scripture. Friends, the point of that and the reason why that is so important to us is that we understand Jesus is the promised hope. He's not close. He's not nearly there. He doesn't fulfill some of it. No, he fulfills all of it. Therefore, our confidence is that Jesus is the promised hope. He was the fulfillment of the promised hope of the Messiah. For generations and generations, the Jews had waited for and longed for the Messiah who would come and establish the kingdom of David, who would rescue them and who would deliver them. The Messiah was promised by God to deliver his people and to establish the kingdom of God. Jewish scholars studied the prophecies that foretold the coming Messiah. Now, you've often heard me say that one of the saddest moments to me in Scripture, 
I mean, one of the saddest moments to me in Scripture is when the, when the, uh, when the, the, the wise men, the magi, they, they come to, to the king's palace and they want to know where the Messiah was to be born. Do you remember this? And the king gathers the religious scholars. They knew the prophecies of Scripture. They were experts in the prophecies of Scripture. They were, they were, they were, the, they were the, the authority on that. And they were able to determine, well, we know exactly where the Bible, the, where the testimony of Scripture says Jesus is going to be, to be born. And so they send the Magi on to the correct location, and they indeed find Jesus. But the saddest thing to me at all of all of that is that the religious scholars knew where the Messiah was to be born, but didn't bother to to go see if, in fact, the Messiah had been born. Every promise and every prophecy was perfectly and completely fulfilled in Jesus. He is the promised hope. Dear friends, when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, He means in part by that, that every prophecy, that every promise that God had made according to the the Messiah's coming had been completed down to the very smallest detail, even to the detail of how they would divide up his clothes. Scripture has been completed. Now, Scripture has been fulfilled. Now, there's a second thing here, and I want you to see that, that, that redemption has been completed. So look with me back in your scriptures with, uh, uh, to verse 28. It says here, and after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, asked for a, something to drink. And then in verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said... It is finished. So verse 28, he knows that it's finished. In verse 30, he speaks it out loud. It is finished. What does he mean by that? Certainly he means that the scriptures have been fulfilled, but, but there's more here. He has completed the will of God. Jesus was perfectly and completely obedient to the Father's will. It is important, I think this is vitally important for us this morning to remember that Jesus did not die on the cross as an unwilling victim, but he died on the cross as a, as a, as a, as a, a willing participant. In other words, Jesus isn't on the cross by happenstance, and he's not there by circumstances against his will. Jesus is there because, and intentionally because, he has obeyed the will of God that has led him there. He's there on purpose. Often when the crucifixion is betrayed in drama, Jesus is depicted as a martyr. Now, there is certainly some some truth to that. But we must remember that martyrs die for a cause, but do not desire to die. Jesus willingly and purposely stepped out of heaven to earth with the intention to die for you and me. There was never a moment in the eternity of Jesus that he did not intend to to die. So he's hanging on the cross there, not thinking to himself, how did I get here? No, he stepped out of the glory of heaven with the purpose of being there. You see, Jesus came to do the work of the Father and was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. Hebrews chapter 10 says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works of the Father has been given to me to accomplish the very works that I am doing. Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Later in chapter 14, Jesus would say, do you, do, not, do, you, do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. And then lastly, in John chapter 17, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All of that saying, the purpose of Jesus stepping out of the glory of heaven into the frailty and the brokenness of the earth was to complete perfectly the will of God. And the will of God was that Jesus would die for broken and sinful humanity. Jesus had been about the work of his father from the moment of his birth. One of the earliest stories we have about Jesus, you may remember, is his parents left him at the, um, at the temple, and he's there soaking in and teaching uh, the, those who were, who were there. And he speaks to his own parents, I've got to be about my father's will. At the cross, he completes the work and the will of God. Dear friends, Jesus not only is perfectly obeying the, the, the will of the Father, Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus taught the Word of the Father, but He is indeed the Word of God. Part of the work of Jesus was to proclaim the Word and the truth of God. So in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Later he would say, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. God had for generations spoken through the law and his prophets. We're thankful for that. The law and the prophets proclaimed the promise of the coming Messiah. But when Jesus came, he didn't speak the law and the prophets. He spoke for himself. There's a little phrase in the New Testament that oftentimes is, is not recognized as the significance in which it was. When you read the New Testament, particularly when Jesus is speaking, he, he has this little phrase where he says, you have heard it said, and then he'll, he'll name a law, and then the next phrase he says, but I say to you. Now, when Jesus spoke those words in, 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 uh, when, uh, originally, those would have been radical statements because no rabbi ever spoke on their own authority. So a rabbi teaching would say, would always reference someone else. So a rabbi would say, Rabbi so-and-so says such and such. And it was a way of uh, having authority in someone else. But Jesus did not apply to or point to somebody else's authority. He said, you have heard it said. In other words, you've heard the teaching on this. But I say, in other words, the authority that Jesus taught out of and the authority that Jesus pointed to wasn't somebody else's. It was his own authority. Jesus is God speaking for himself. We do, not, we do not devote ourselves to the words of men. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching who made known the words of Christ. Jesus made known the mystery of the gospel. The fullness of the teaching of God is made known in and on the cross. Therefore, on the cross, the work of, God, of teaching and proclaiming God's word is finished. You see, Jesus is there on the cross completing the work of atonement and, 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 and finishing the work of atoning for our sin. 
on the cross, Jesus speaks the final words, it is finished. Now, in, in English, that's three words. In Greek, it was only one. The word that, that Jesus uses there simply means to bring an activity to a successful finish. To complete, to finish, to end, to accomplish. You may not be familiar, but one of the great preachers of a previous generation, a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon, said of that one Greek word, he says, it would, it would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever could be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. It, I cannot attain it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it, fathom it. In other words, that single word that Jesus declared, that all the work of the promise of Scripture, that the hope of the gospel was complete, that the atonement and the redemption for our sins was finished, that is a greater understanding than we can ever fathom. It is more than we can ever accomplish spoken in the one word. That Jesus spoke. The work of redemption is finished on the cross. Since the days of Moses, the Jews had made sacrifices before the Lord to atone for sin. Since the days of Moses, the priest had made yearly sacrifices to atone for the people. Now the Lamb of God, whom John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has been the offering for our sin on the cross as a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. When he declared it is finished, therefore that moment until the rest of eternity, was, it will never be another need for another altar with a slain lamb or ram or anything else. Because the work is done and redemption has been completed. We don't sacrifice or have altars of, in our churches today where lambs and rams are slaughtered because we, not because we've rejected them or the Old Testament teaching that required them, but because we no longer need them. The work of atonement and redemption is finished. Now, one other word here. And that is, if you are to be saved today, if you are to come to know Jesus today and receive the gift of salvation, then you must reckon with the meaning behind it is finished. And I would just simply press to you it this way. Salvation is by Faith alone, no works, just faith. So here's what I think is happening here in this scene. It is the ultimate demonstration that the works of man are worthless. In the early days of my ministry at our previous church in Adel, I experienced a crisis that came about one click away from ending my ministry there. I, I, one of the local funeral homes in town had had a, 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 a very prominent lady in town die who was Catholic. And the Catholic church there in that community was a very small building. And so the funeral home director offered to this family, well, you could have your services, your funeral mass, at the First Baptist Church in Adel. And the family agreed to that. The problem was he had not asked permission if he could use the building. And so after having the family agree and all that sort of stuff, he then called me up and he said, Pastor, can, can we have a funeral at your church? Well, we had certainly done community events before like that. And I said, well, we can talk about that. What is it? He said, well, it's, it's a Catholic mass we'd like to have at the First Baptist Church at Adel. And I said, no, you, you can't do that. 
Well, what he should at that point done and says, you know, I really made a mistake. I shouldn't have offered that before, and I'll go back to the family and make it right. But this guy got all mad and hot, and he didn't want to go back to the family and explain his faux pas. And so what he tried to do instead was, was press and pressure the church to, to do it anyway. It was an ugly event. And, and to be honest, some folks said to me, are, are you not just being mean to this family? Why would you not want to be kind to this family and gracious to this family and allow them to have their funeral uh, mass in, at the First Baptist Church of, of Adel. Total honesty, we had to have deacons, meetings, and the rest over this. I really thought there was for a season there, I thought this is probably going to wind up my ministry here. Um, maybe the saddest moment was in, in one of our leadership meetings, one of our leaders said to me, he said, well, I know, he said, I, I figure we aren't supposed to do this, but I don't know why we're not supposed to do this. And I, I thought that might be a good teaching opportunity. And this is what I said to them. I said, we, we, we cannot have a service on, in, our, in our church on Friday afternoon that the following Sunday I would call false teaching. We cannot do something in our building on one day that three days later when I'm preaching the gospel, I would say, is, is, is disconnected and contrary to the testimony of the gospel. Catholic Mass has some elements in it that are, are works-based elements that proclaim there's something else to be done other than the work of Jesus on the cross. And friends, the testimony of the Bible and the gospel that we preach today, listen to me carefully, is that there is nothing, absolutely nothing you can do that can do anything more than what Jesus already did on the cross. It is finished. That's why we say the works of man are worthless. We can do nothing to earn our salvation. Because, of the work, because the work of atonement was finished on the cross, no work that we can do now or have done or can ever do can in any way affect our salvation. We cannot earn it. We cannot improve it. The only way you receive the gift of salvation is through faith alone. Now here's the rub for most of us. We like to do things by ourselves. One of the earliest phrases that our children learn and most of us spoke as we were growing up is, I'll do it myself. Even when you couldn't do it yourself, you declared to your parents that you would. Friends, we must reckon with the words of Jesus. It is finished. When a job is complete, then the labor is no more. And to continue to work for our salvation and to attempt our own righteousness is to reject the work that Jesus has done. Listen to me carefully on that. To continue to work, to continue to try to earn or affect our salvation is to reject the work that Jesus has done on the cross. If it is finished, it is finished. To believers, the gospel message seems so very simple and easy. Have faith and believe. Have faith and believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Have faith and believe that he was buried, physically, bodily dead, buried in the grave. Have faith and believe that God raised him again on the third day. And to confess Jesus as the risen Savior and as Lord. To those who are blind in their sin, faith is the most difficult task of all. Because faith requires that you abandon your effort and you trust only on Jesus Christ. But friends, faith is what is required 
Because it is only by faith that there is salvation. To continue to labor at a task already completed by another is to reject the work that has been done. The arrogance and pride of our flesh tempts us to believe that we can save ourselves. So we do good works to try to make up for the not so good things that we've done. We give great effort to clean up our behavior. Well, we've got a list of things that we're going to stop doing. We've got a list of things we're going to start doing to make us a better person. We work hard to guard our speech so that the vile things that we think about don't come out of our mouth. Or at least don't come out when certain people are around. We attempt to find some measure of comfort in comparing ourselves to those who don't seem to live as upright as ourselves. And there's always somebody we can point to and say, well, at least I'm better than they are. In a little village in northeastern Spain, this is a true story, the little local church there had a centuries-old fresco on the wall. It was a painting of Jesus prior to the crucifixion. It's a, it's a genre of painting, and so it has Jesus with the crown of thorns on his head and his hands bound. It's a fresco, so it's painted on the wall of the church. And over the last several hundred years, the moisture in the air and on the wall has caused some of this priceless painting's paint to begin to flake off. And the, paint, the painting is, in fact, deteriorating. That's been known. In fact, if you spend any time in Europe and you get an opportunity to see some of these, these, uh, these old paintings, that's the, the nature of it. it those, these paintings deteriorate. Well, the, uh, the family of the original artist wanted to give some money, raise some money for the restoration of this, this treasured artwork in this little village community church. And so they did. They, they began to talk about raising money. And in, in the effort to raise money, they decided they would, they would go and make an assessment of the state of the painting currently. And when they went to the church to make an assessment of where the painting is currently, they were absolutely horrified. Because what they thought had happened is vandals had come in and ruined the painting by making a childlike painting, almost as making Jesus look almost like with, with ape-like features painted over the original fresco. Horrible. Well, that, of course, required an investigation. They had to find who was the culprit, who had done this terrible vandalistic work on this priceless painting, and why would you do that to such a precious work? Well, what they discovered is it was not vandals. It wasn't kids. It wasn't a prank. It was an 80-year-old woman who worked at the church, who was a parishioner of the church, and who, in fact, loved the painting. And every day while she worked in the church and cleaned around the church and served in the church, she walked by this painting, and it broke her heart that the painting was deteriorating. And so she decided, I think I can touch it up and make it a little bit better. And so she did. She got paint and paintbrushes, and she went to work painting on the painting. 
you need to look it up and, and see what she came out with was anything but fine art. It was awful. It was awful. And the sad reality of it is, when it was all said and done, they, I mean, do, do you sue her? Do you put her in the jail? She, she clearly wasn't doing it maliciously, but you know what she was trying to do? She was trying to help something that was already finished. And when you try to help something that is already finished, you don't make it better. You always make it worse. Now, friends, here's where we are today. You have two choices. You can try to make it better. Your life's a mess. You know there's sin in your life. You know you have not um, lived a life worthy of the glory of God. And you know right now, if Jesus were to come this afternoon, that you don't have what it takes to stand before the glory of God in full righteousness and glory. So you can choose today, listen, from the rest of my life, whether God gives me one year or a hundred more years, I'm going to work really, really, really hard to be a better person, a nicer person, to try to push back down those terrible things in my life, those propensities in my life that are not so beautiful, and I'm going to try to do the good things that I know I should do. And here is the reality is, you can work and work and work and work and work until the last day of your life, and you will never accomplish the work of restoring your life to righteousness. You don't have the tools. You don't have the ability. There is no way for you to make up for the vileness of your sin. But here's the good word of the gospel. The work for your redemption, the work for your atonement would make, which makes you right before holy God, has already been finished. It was finished when those three words, or that one word in Greek, passed through the lips of our Savior. It is finished. The work is done. The task is complete. Scripture is fulfilled. Redemption has been completed. Atonement has been offered. And today, the only thing required to receive the work that is, has been completed is faith in Jesus. Faith that God indeed raised Him from the dead. Faith that He indeed died for your sins and to confess Him as Lord. And when you believe in faith, confess Him as Lord, in part what you're doing is you are recognizing and putting your eternal trust in this, that the work has been done, that the task has been completed, that in fact your redemption and the atoning work of Jesus was complete on the cross, that it is indeed finished in Jesus. Friends, you are, you're choosing today. Either you will rest in your own work, which you'll never finish. In fact, you're making it worse. Or you'll trust and rest in the power of the cross, which indeed was finished at the cross and remains finished today. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.